This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. It's like deja vu all over again. And I say that because former President Trump, he announced that he's running for president again. And as I tuned into his announcement last Tuesday, yeah, I felt like I'd seen this episode before. Together we will be taking on the most corrupt forces and entrenched interests imaginable. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement. Okay, and as he announces another run for president, we have David K. Johnston. He is a man who perhaps knows Mr. Trump better than any other reporter in the business. So he's going he's gonna to be here. We're going to talk to him. We are also going to talk to our friend, former federal prosecutor, Harry Littman. He wrote a column in the LA Times about whether Mr. Trump's announcement, the goal was really to thwart all of these criminal investigations that he is facing. But first, let's get the latest on the news because there's a lot of focus on Capitol Hill right now because this week, the end of an era. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. It's Brian, CBS News congressional correspondent, Scott McFarland, to talk about this changing of the guard. Scott, thanks for being with us. Good to be here, Jeff. All right. So another busy week for you on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's sort of a changing of the guard in some ways, especially as it relates to Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She will not run for a leadership position. Would you characterize for us the, the moment she made that announcement? There's two different implications, and they were immediately noticeable as she gave those remarks. First of all, it was clear that this was a historic moment. The first and only woman to serve as U.S. House Speaker will no longer lead her party in Congress. And the practical implications resonated, too. And honestly, there, there's, a, there's a concern about the fact she's their biggest and best fundraiser. 
far and away their best vote counter. And you can't just replicate that overnight. I think that realization was hitting them as well. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It was a moving moment also because you did have Republicans in the room as well. It wasn't just Democrats there. And that shows you the respect that even some Republicans who in the past have used her as a lightning rod to uh, draw out their base, even they respect her accomplishments. There were some there. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the incoming Republican leader and potentially the next Speaker of the House, was not there. And that was noticed. There were several Republicans in the room watching, listening, sitting there for, again, what was clearly a historic moment. It's really incumbent on Republicans, though, to build a new relationship with the incoming leadership of the House Democratic Caucus, because there are going to be moments where they Republicans will need some Democratic votes to do some of the blocking and tackling of governance. They may not be able to muster those votes with Republicans alone. And there will be some close calls, some bills, there always are, where some bipartisan coalition is needed. So Republicans will have to build a new bridge, a new relationship with Democrats, but the reverse is true, too. Uh, I, you know, I've been talking to people since the midterms, and it really does feel to me there is change in the air on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I think as Americans uh, confront inflation on a daily basis, gas prices that they're not happy with. It could work to their benefit because I think with the narrow margins on the Hill, somebody's going to have to do something or else in two years, they will be stuck with the blame. Don't you think? It's a compelling argument. I've heard it from others, including those who, who work in that building every day too. Um, at this moment, with narrow margins throughout, they abound in all levels of our government. Now, Everybody has somebody to blame if things go south. And that's useful in politics. It's useful on the eve of a presidential election cycle. And it's also good for leverage. Um, do you, who, if there's, a, if there's a, an impasse on keeping the government open, if there's a government shutdown, um, who's going to get the blame for it? Well, that's unknown. So uh, maybe everybody wants to work together to avert it because, because nobody wants to take the blame for a loss. When you have divided government, there is the ability to, to, to make an argument that don't blame us, blame the other guy. That's helpful to Democrats. They didn't have that capacity over the past two years. It also, though, can it can result in interesting things, Jeff. Um, Republican-controlled House, Democratic-controlled Senate. Some things truly have to pass. They have to authorize the military. They have to fund federal agencies, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, which you know well. Interesting things can now happen because some things have to get done. and now, both parties have some equity in it. That, we don't know what comes next in that sense. That makes this very interesting. And it could be. It could be beneficial politically for Democrats. Former President Trump, though, he is, of course, not a member of the House. He is a factor in the House, especially if uh, Kevin McCarthy becomes the Speaker. They have a relationship, a good relationship uh, as of this episode of ACF, that could change depending on what Kevin McCarthy does going forward as he tries to secure vote, votes for the speakership. Um, but as I was saying, the, pre the former president hasn't has an impact. You know, he still has a lot of support, especially in the House. 
How do you think he's going to factor in to the next couple of years, especially as he throws his hat in the ring for president? Let's start with how he'll impact the next few months. Kevin McCarthy needs to secure roughly 218 votes to become the next House Speaker. This past week, in an intra-party vote, he got just 180 or so. So he needs to pick up about 30 more. Um, And Donald Trump is almost certainly going to be relevant as he tries to get those votes, because the votes that are not there for him are likely from the House Freedom Caucus, the most devoted supporters and ambassadors for Donald Trump in the U.S. House. What Kevin McCarthy says about Donald Trump, what Kevin McCarthy says about Donald Trump's now announced candidacy for the White House could and likely will be relevant. So the impact will pretty much be immediate inside the House Republican Conference. Former President Trump's salience in the public sphere, um, especially now that he's a, a candidate for president again, is going to inform an awful lot of what Democrats say as they counter House Republicans now in the minority, what they do in the U.S. Senate with their narrow majority there. The Biden administration does with some of its messaging. I mean, his outsized figure in American politics remains intransigently, and it's going to impact a lot of what we hear from Congress. doesn't mean it's going to impact their legislation, but a lot of the messaging we hear, especially from the newly minority Democrats, I'm going to mention Donald Trump an awful lot. Let's shift to talk about the next generation of leadership in the Democratic Party. I worked in New York, um, and I just happened to be in the room when Hakeem Jeffries uh, learned for the first time that he was going to be a member of Congress. And I was like, who is this guy? You know, who is this Hakeem Jeffries guy? And I spoke to him after his win. And I came away thinking, oh, this guy, he's pretty smart. He's sharp. I did not expect him to rise to the top of the chain of leadership for Democrats in the House. But what I've seen is someone who has been standing in the wings, and it seems to be paying off. He's sowed these seeds since he got there. It's worth underscoring, Jeff. He only got to the U.S. Congress 10 years ago. That's a short lifespan for somebody who is poised to become the leader of a party in Congress. So he used those 10 years efficiently and effectively. There's something else that's nagging at me, though. I just have difficulty picturing Nancy Pelosi, this outsized force in American politics, this figure for the history books, becoming a backbench rank-and-file member, going to those sometimes painful 10 a.m. subcommittee hearings, sitting at the end of the dais for two full years. There's not a whole lot of precedent in recent time for that. The most recent speaker to lose his majority, or lose his speaker position and stay in Congress was Dennis Hastert of Illinois. He didn't stay long. He didn't finish his term. I just had trouble picturing what that looks like. And the bottom line, though, is, Jeff, the House Democratic Caucus can't afford to lose her vote. This will be interesting to watch how that plays out. It will. Scott McFarland. CBS News Congressional Correspondent. Thanks for your time. Nice to be here. David K. Johnston, author of seven books, including The Making of Donald Trump, joins us now to talk about this announcement. David, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here, Jeff. All right. I'm still trying to process the announcement. What does it mean for Donald Trump? What does it mean for America? What does it mean for the GOP? What do you think is the lasting memory, if you will, from that speech? Well, I don't know the feeling lasting memory from that speech, but it was done strategically. 
Donald knows that he is about to be indicted over the very sensitive classified information he took from the White House, which apparently included the identities of American undercover agents or assets overseas. And by announcing his campaign for the presidency almost two years, 720 days before uh, voting, what he hopes to achieve is they only indicted me to keep me from running for president. They don't want me. The radical left is so determined. The Joe Biden radical left administration is so determined to keep me from becoming president again because you, of course, need me. That uh, and that's his hope. You're 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 saying that he hopes that this is something that he can use as a talking point on the campaign trail to stir up his supporters. Yes, and I believe he will also try and use it as a delay tactic in fighting an indictment. Uh, Donald's number one legal strategy, taught to him by his second father, as he called him, the notorious lawyer Roy Cohn, was to delay, delay, delay any action by law enforcement, and if that isn't enough, rat out other people, which he has done in the past, and always denounce law enforcement when they come after you. Any law enforcement agency that comes after you, Roy Cohn taught, they are illegitimate. And you've seen Donald do that with his attacks on the FBI, on justice, on various prosecutors. Mm, interesting. And, and what was also interesting this time around is how the GOP and some of the big names in the GOP reacted to his throwing his hat in the ring. It wasn't like the last time, that's for sure, or really the last two times, because this is the third time he's decided to run for president, but this time is different. It is. It's actually, by the way, the fourth time. He ran in 2000 uh, as a candidate of a fringe party and bragged at the time that he would make money off his uh, campaign. Um, hmm. That was back in 2000. The... A number of Republicans are trying to distance themselves from Trump, to ignore him, to move on. And they wouldn't be in this position if on January 7th, uh, uh, likely Speaker McCarthy and Minority Leader in the Senate McConnell, who denounced Trump and blamed him for the insurrection, had stuck by what they said instead of turning around and uh, expressing a fealty to some level to Donald. But we could have been over this almost two years ago. Uh, now, with the results of the 2022 congressional elections and various state and local elections, uh, a number of responsible party leaders have come to recognize that Donald is toxic and damaging to the party, or as Lindsey Graham warned, if uh, uh, Donald wasn't stopped back in 2016, he would eventually destroy the party. Well, he, he hasn't really he hasn't really had a record of success. I mean, obviously you you've heard about the response to his campaigning on the during the midterms and the candidates that he endorsed. But it's just a trail a trail of criminal investigations, a trail of failed candidates. 
I mean, for the the candidate who promised to win so much that the American people would get tired of winning, I think the the American people are just tired of losing. Well, I think uh, there was not much winning, and I think what the American people are tired of is whining. Uh, Donald, uh, his whole life, and I've known him for more than 34 years, uh, always whines when he doesn't get what he wants. He has a very childlike approach to things. I want this, and if he doesn't get it, uh, something's wrong with other people. And at some point, that just wears out. And we've seen a number of just ordinary Republican voters give interviews to reporters from a whole host of organizations uh, saying, uh, well, you know, I'm just tired of this. I want to move on. I want to have a person running for president who's interested in the country, not his own ego. <laughs> well, I, you know, if you look at how 2024 is shaping up, in some ways, you know, some people might say it's going to be a battle of egos. Uh, Ron DeSantis, who, you know, he's got a big personality. I'll put it that way. Donald Trump, they're already sort of, you know, uh, already engaged in uh, some verbal sparring. Glenn Youngkin, I mean, the race is shaping up. Imagine if Chris Christie gets in the race, too. Uh, Who else? Pence, the former vice president. All of the sudden, in, in just the last week and a half, the GOP race for president is starting to take shape. Yes, and it's highly unlikely that uh, Donald will be able this time around to get the nomination. Now, I was one of the few people who in 2015, when Donald announced, warned that he would, and I do mean warned, that he could get to the White House, that he was utterly unqualified. Um, The first of my three Trump books that you mentioned, The Making of Donald Trump, I detailed things like the extraordinary favors Trump did for one of the biggest international cocaine traffickers in America, whom he was involved with up to his eyeballs, and couldn't get a lot of traction from people because Donald had some things going for him then that will be very important in 2024. Um, And let me ring off a few of those, uh, Jeff, so that people understand this. 90% of Americans are worse off now than they were in the 1970s. Every year I analyze the economic data and the wage data to show this. So for an example, in 2020, Trump's last year in office, the year of the pandemic, 82% of all the increased dollars of pay went to people already making a million dollars a year. And in 2021, people already making a million dollars a year got 30% of all the increased pay dollars in America. So the vast majority of people are really feeling strained economically. And that group Donald was able to very successfully reach out to, along with his two other strategies. Uh, One was his uh, blatant racist appeals that started right with his announcement in 2015. And then his claims that he's a Christian and being persecuted by the IRS for being a Christian, 
even though he says his life philosophy is a single word, revenge. And in one of his books, he spent six pages mocking Christians as fools, idiots, and schmucks. Despite that, he got a lot of traction uh, with, with these claims. Today, we live in a somewhat different economy, but we've known since the late 1950s from research by political scientists that Americans tend to vote their pocketbooks. So there have been 10 million jobs added in the last uh, almost two years. Um, we achieved briefly the economic growth that Trump claimed he would produce of 6%. Uh, Trump's performance in economic growth was slightly below the average since World War II. But nonetheless, the vast majority of Americans continue to have very little in savings. Their jobs are tenuous. Their incomes um, are worse than they were adjusted for inflation and other factors than in the mid-1970s. So there's a lot of legitimate anger out there by people, many of whom don't understand why this happened. Um, I wrote a trilogy of books, uh, Perfectly Legal, Free Lunch, and The Fine Print, uh, revealing all sorts of government policies that no one knew about, or very few people knew about, that effectively reach into your pocket or allow companies to reach into your pocket and take a penny here and a dollar there. Uh, and if you can get, Jeff, a penny a day from every person in America, and there's an industry that gets... I might count three pennies a day. Congress did a study and said, well, it's two pennies a day. Uh, but if you can get a penny a day from every person in America, at the end of the year, you'll have over a billion dollars. So it doesn't take a lot for a concentrated group of people at the top to use government policies to make themselves fabulously rich. And while you're not going to notice a penny or three pennies a day gone from your pocket, there are hundreds of these policies out there that do these things that I described in, in my best-selling series. So there's plenty of things to exploit about Americans being unhappy with how uh, economics in America is affecting their pocketbook. And whichever Republican, I think, does the best job of exploiting and developing that issue is likely to be the nominee. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it is going to be an interesting 2023 and 2024. About Donald Trump, you, as you noted, you, you've covered him for decades. How, how, besides the obvious, how has he changed from the guy that you started covering decades ago to the person he has evolved into? Well, mostly it's been enhancements. I mean, he, Donald has, uh, since before I knew him, been declaring that he should be the president of the United States, that no one else is fit to be president. And having actually achieved the White House, that's really gone to his head. Um, uh, if it weren't for his success in doing that, we could say he's just a megalomaniac and no different than uh, um, the crazy person you meet on the sidewalk. But having achieved the White House, you have to say, well, you know, he, he pulled this off. He's become uh, more very recently in his statements, and I get many emails from him every day now that he does not talk to me anymore. Uh, he's become clearly very anxious. Um, Donald grew up in a household where all that mattered was getting the money and winning without getting arrested. That was the, the tenor. And Mary Trump has talked about this as well. Uh, 
and Donald is now faced with the prospect of being a loser, and there's nothing he can't stand more than being called a loser than not being called anything. That was the point of the cover of Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, Murdoch through Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, the the New York Post being a major promoter of Trump. Uh, When he announced the 2024 candidacy, the New York Post cover just had a line at the bottom that said, Florida retiree makes announcement. So Donald's, I believe, feeling very anxious and insecure about his position. And I think you'll see more extreme statements from him going forward and into the 2024 campaign. You know, you you bring up a really good point, uh, because as someone who uh, lived in New York City for a long time and, and followed Donald Trump's career myself. I know that as someone who grew up, uh, he was someone who grew up rich, obviously, in Queens. But as you know, David, he was never accepted in Manhattan society. And now we're at a point where Manhattan society, the wealthy donors that contributed to his past campaigns, are now abandoning him. So it's almost like he's back to square one again in terms of being the outsider and trying to prove that he belongs. Do you see that in in the dynamics that we're seeing today? Absolutely. Uh, You know, back in 1999, the director, Tim Burton, hired me to write a proposal for a movie about uh, Donald and uh, his then nemesis uh, casino owner, Steve Wynn. And that was the core of the idea that I put forth was that Donald and Queens looked at the bright lights of Manhattan and wanted to be Mr. Manhattan and was never accepted. In fact, uh, he couldn't get any young woman in Manhattan to marry him. He had to go up to Toronto and and marry a a sometimes runway model from Czechoslovakia uh, because so many women went after one date with him. Uh, Now he's faced with the real power brokers as they apply in both parties, but the real power brokers in the Republican Party saying enough and turning their backs on him and having Rupert Murdoch's news organization follow Murdoch's directive. That's the only, by the way, news organizations I know in America that that do that. At, At the New York Times, where I worked for many years, or the LA Times or CBS News, if some manager came in and said, here's our talking points today, the news staff would just walk out. It just wouldn't happen. But that's not true at Murdoch organizations. It's understood you follow directives. And to have Rupert Murdoch turn on Trump is just one of many, but a public one of many, where we're seeing the rejection of Donald Trump. And that's really hard for him to deal with. He he feels entirely that he isn't given his due. And his due is, of course, he should run the country. No one else is qualified except Donald Trump. The New York Post. I was just looking for some of these headlines. Um, But it has been brutal for Donald Trump. Funny if you're not Donald Trump, but the New York Post has made former President Trump the butt of its jokes. 
Yes, and when you're Donald Trump and you've lost Rupert Murdoch, you're really not in a very good place. Now, by running for president, by the way, there is one other thing here that's important, Jeff, to Trump's strategy. Trump's always made the point that he kept, first of all, he said he wouldn't need to raise any money to run for president, which quickly evaporated as just another Trumpian lie. But the money he's been raising since he left the White House, more than a quarter of a billion dollars, has primarily come in small contributions. And he's raised this through claims that uh, I've just activated a 1,200% match, or in one case, he claimed a 117,000% match if you made a donation. Um, and uh, he, he, he can raise and has demonstrated his ability to raise a great deal of money who send, from people who send in a dollar or $50 or maybe $150. And uh, that will probably continue. He has this base of people who see him not as a demagogue, but a demigod. And Donald himself has said things from time to time suggesting he's godlike. And people who have bought into that are going to continue to contribute to him. They're going to vote for him. And this is going to bedevil the Republican Party because Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy didn't exercise the opportunity they had in January 2021 to renounce Donald, denounce Donald, get him out of the party and move on. Well, that's also what's so interesting about Donald Trump. He is not the kind of person who can, you know, these these supporters that he has, he can't really feel their pain, but he can obviously identify with their grievances. And it seems to me, if you look at what he campaigns on and the support he still gets, that's that's what he wins, is this this... You know, they're out to get us. They are, we are the victims. But he never talks about what he's going to do to actually help these people have a brighter future. Uh, Jeff, you exactly nailed that. He has no empathy for others, but he knows how to read a room or a whole country and recognize its grievances. One of the weird things that I experienced in the 2015 16 period was. Donald used lines that came right out of my mouth from my television appearances, cable television appearances, uh, about my books on the economy. And uh, one of his key uh, proposals, which he uh, uh, did not follow through on, that was a married couple wouldn't pay any income taxes on first $50,000. That came straight out, out of my work. And in doing so, he recognized that the economic pain that's felt by about 90% of Americans, but he doesn't have any empathy for other people. Donald is, is incapable of any sense of empathy for someone else. Um, it, and it's part of, of how his father uh, raised him. Uh, be glad your father wasn't Fred Trump, who was a monster of a man and a just monster of a father. Um, you know, you'll, you almost never see Donald tell a joke. And when he does, it's very stiff. It's very difficult for him. Uh, it's not a natural thing to do. Uh, and, and he's a, a man who believes in his own mind that he is perfect. He was asked once um, 
as a Christian, Donald Trump, uh, what was the last thing you asked God for forgiveness for? And of course, real Christians are in a constant state of seeking forgiveness for their conduct. Trump's answer was, well, I've never done that. I've never done anything in my life that requires asking for forgiveness. Uh, that's, I think, the single most important statement he's ever made about who he is. He doesn't think he's like everybody else. He doesn't think he is accountable for anything. He thinks in his own mind that he's never done anything wrong in his life, despite all of the things I've documented about him, cheating investors, cheating workers, uh, lying under oath. In his own mind, it was a perfect statement. It was a perfect call. Well, he is under investigation by several different prosecutors in several different cases. So we'll see. Uh, perhaps quite definitively, if he's ever done anything wrong. David K. Johnston, one of the reporters in this country who may know more about Donald Trump than anybody else, author of seven books, including The Making of Donald Trump. David, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Let's continue our conversation about Donald Trump. We talked about how... You know, he announced another campaign for president last week, Tuesday night. It received mixed reviews. That's being generous. In this segment, I want to talk about, well, does this insulate the former president from all of these different investigations, serious investigations that are currently underway? I'm not going to count them because that'll take too much time. <laughs> that chuckling you heard in the background is former federal prosecutor Harry Littman, who's a, a friend of CBS News. I have him on TV in a lot of my reports, and now we've roped him into radio podcast world. Harry, thanks for being with us. Good to be here, Jeff. You are so smart, and you, you wrote this op-ed about whether, I mean, essentially about whether this insulates the former president from these prosecutions. So, so what kind of, what are you saying here? You're saying that it complicates the Department of Justice's task, but it could, it could, I'll let you explain it. What exactly are you saying? All right. But it doesn't insulate, I guess, given the way you, you put it. Um, yeah. So look, I think uh, one of his prime motivations was trying to blunt or maybe even, you know, completely escape from. And boy, you're right. What are we up to? I, I, I did a CBS show last week and it was like a weather map where they went all around the country and there were so many possible investigations. Basically, Legally speaking, it does nothing for him, as in zero zip nada. Obviously, it you know it has political impact, but there's no law out there at all that suggests you can't prosecute a candidate. There is one thing I doubt he was at all aware of it, but there's a tricky little sort of fly in the ointment, and and the op-ed does talk about that, and that is. The special counsel regs at the Department of Justice, remember, that's what um, resulted in the appointment of Bob Mueller back um, several years ago. 
do say that if there's a conflict of interest um, and some other things, you need to appoint a special counsel. And I do think if he's an actual candidate, seems like a conflict of interest to me, and I think it will to Merrick Garland because you're going after the guy who's going to run against the president. That even um, affects your own job. However, the conflict of interest is just the beginning of the inquiry. And from there, the department, Merrick Garland, has to decide what's in the public interest. And for a lot of reasons, including that there's just no way with the current political landscape that people won't uh, assume whoever they appoint is a partisan hack. Um, there's no, I, I see that the public interest doesn't require Garland to appoint a special counsel. And as I say, that's the only way in, in which it could affect things and maybe delay things for a little bit. And I think here it shouldn't, but it's nuanced. And, you know, Donald Trump doesn't do nuance, but I, but I think even if he didn't realize it, he did create this little wrinkle for the DOJ. It gives them something to think about. Again, the column, and I'm going to get it right this time. It's in the Los Angeles Times. Trump's candidacy complicates a potential criminal case against him, but it can't protect him. So to our listeners, you should check it out when you get a minute after you listen to this podcast. Um... But I know, and and you know this now, there there has been discussion about whether a special counsel should be appointed. But I want to get your thoughts on this. These cases obviously predate his announcement. And clearly he, you know, there has been some deliberation among his advisors about whether he should or shouldn't have announced that candidacy when he did. So does that play a role in the Department of Justice's deliberations that, you know, these cases predate by several months his announcement? And, you know, he was probably factoring in the DOJ investigations and the DOJ rules around campaigns when he made this decision, that has to factor in to whether or not they appoint a special counsel. Yeah, look, I agree, because think about it, especially the Mar-a-Lago one, they, they may be, you know, approaching the finish line there. And imagine if a uh, potential defendant could simply announce uh, candidacy for any office, and that would somehow freeze the linebackers at DOJ. You know, it would be quite a weapon that anyone could use. Look, what we want to know is that the department is proceeding without fear or favor. And as Merrick Garland's been saying for months, that anyone else who did this conduct, if they would be prosecuted for it, then Trump ought to be and vice versa. And there's really nothing about his now having declared that changes that kind of calculation. I think it's true that people will scream and jump up and down at least, you know, the whatever, 30, 40 percent that's still with him and maybe some members of the new 
Republican majority in the House, but that's going to happen and was going to happen anyway. And if they let a defendant just um, control their conduct uh, by this kind of maneuver, it just wouldn't be in the public interest is, you know, the best way to put it, I think. Yeah, I I have asked the attorney general that question, um, a question that elicited that response. He said, and he was quite animated, which... Merrick Garland doesn't get animated, but when I asked him <laughs> this question, he said, "No one is about." Hey, I've the seen law. him dance. He can he can get animated. Well, <laughs> yeah, if he's dancing, but you know, he doesn't lose his cool. That's really true. He is unflappable. Yeah, he's unflappable, and I tried to get under his skin a little. I, the question I remember asking him this question it was replayed all over different networks. It was, all right, is your team deliberating the complications of charging a former president? And he said, no one is above the law. I don't know how many times I have to say this, but no one is above the law. So, yeah, given how many times he has emphasized that, I, I, yeah, I, even though there's been deliberations about a special counsel, I think he obviously sees through the tactics that the president, the former president, is using, whether it's trying to get a special master in in the classified documents case, which, and he succeeded at that, to delay, 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 delay. Let's kick this can down. I mean, how long has he been fighting to keep his taxes under wraps? I mean, it's been four years? So it's all about Delay, 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 and this is yet p- potentially another tactic to del- to to delay any charges that he might face. And even though Jeff, we're only a week after the midterms, you know the wheels of justice grind slowly. And even without any special tricks on his part, let's say he's indicted in two months. Say um, the just normal run of things, the kind of pretrial motions in his case, he might have some unusual legal, uh, arguments. Maybe he hopes they go up and down. You're looking at a year anyway, and, and that would be nothing unusual. So you're looking at trial and a jury being sworn in February, 2024. And you know, the time grows pretty short when all of a sudden we could be right up against an election that that part could implicate well it probably wouldn't it wouldn't the the department of justice non-interference policy just says you won't do anything overt that would be covert you could still have the trial but still you'd be looking at the real prospect that if he wins it all goes into shambles and um, even though the, the midterms were just a week ago, the time, uh, if you really sort of play it out and know how the criminal justice system works, is growing kind of short. That's another point about the public interest. People are saying, oh, God, you'd start at square one. You wouldn't. The way it would work is you'd bring in a special counsel and they would just preside over the team that's already done, you know, months and months of work and grand jury stuff here. But still, it's some delay and there's not a lot of room for for uh extra time here. I agree. I agree. 
Um, However, I have a feeling. I have a feeling there are going to be indictments soon in at least one of these cases. For example, I have a feeling this Georgia case with the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, I think there are going to be some indictments there. Um, If you look, remember people, this is the case where the evidence has been heard by tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. That's the phone call of the president at the time, Donald Trump, to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State. Can you just find another 11,780 votes? That's the phone conversation that was recorded. That's that's pretty airtight evidence right there. Yeah, there's an audio tape. Prosecutors love audio tapes. And yesterday, Cassidy Hutchinson testified there. And remember, she told us, you know, she told the American uh, people in at the hearing before the January 6th committee that she heard Trump say that I'm so embarrassed that we lost because the only thing left, it gets pretty airtight, but maybe he would try to say, oh, but I really thought we won, not with Cassidy Hutchinson. So I agree, and I think all signals are they're going to do an indictment, but, but, but. This is a local DA indicting a former president, and that one you can also be sure, even more than Mar-a-Lago, is going to produce all this litigation about can a, you know, because imagine if she can do it, then a local Texas DA or whatever can do it against Biden. There may be, this gets pretty pointy headed, but they may take the whole thing from state court to federal court. So I agree those charges are coming and soon. Um, But the the fact of the charge is going to be much less sort of cataclysmic than if the department brings it because it's going to be tied in knots at least for a while. I agree, Harry. I agree. But let me just let me just throw this one at you. I think here's why I think that is probably the most consequential case that he will face. I don't think anybody is expecting Donald Trump to be sentenced to any lengthen, you know, any uh, lengthy prison sentence, or or the Department of Justice get some major uh, conviction against him. I think, I, I think the person who will do that because she will face less scrutiny and has fewer ties to the Biden administration. And because the evidence is so clear, I think Fonnie Willis, for that reason, has the best case. And I think that's why you have all these people, um, Rudy Giuliani, who was told before he testified before the grand jury that he was a target. And if you remember, and I was there the day he showed up to testify, he walked in and he was talking to the media. But he ran out. He didn't run out. He got into a into an SUV with blacked out windows. I don't know if we've seen him since. <laughs> I don't know if we have seen. And this was after he said he was too unhealthy to travel. Exactly around. right. We haven't heard from him since. I wonder what happened in there. 
Except that, yeah, and Mark Meadows, and today Lindsey Graham is there. Is he going to take the fifth, right? Yeah, let's see how they react after. I really think they know that Fonnie Willis, in that case, is trouble for them. And that swagger that they used to have, I don't know. It just seems to me she has defeated these guys at just almost every turn. They try to delay. She goes to court. She eventually wins. Because she's got such a strong case, you know, so I wonder if, you know, if she is the, and we're just speculating here, but if she is the first to indict the former president, some of these other cases, perhaps they become less consequential. The pressure is, is off the Department of Justice. And then at that point, maybe you try to get a deal. Just to make it all, make it all and the former president go away. And you let Fonnie Willis go the distance. What do you think? You know, I think in general, that's a really great point. Like everyone is screaming for Trump's scalp involving, say, January 6th, and you understand it. But if there's a conviction, including at Mar-a-Lago, the landscape's just going to look different. There'll be diehards who who will, you know, until he's in an orange jumpsuit and in jail, uh, won't, won't be satisfied. But you're right. I think there'll, there'll be some sense of compromise. On the other hand, she's got a couple things that um, DOJ doesn't have. First, that lovely audio tape. But second, she's got like half of her witnesses are people who are friendly and favorable, like Raffensperger, like the whole Florida political class that was that that, that Trump tried to push around. Whereas at the at the um, national level, you've had mainly people who have been staying loyal to Trump. So, yeah, she's got some cards to play that the Department of Justice doesn't, but also some challenges. Yeah, she does. No doubt about that. It's not an easy case for her. Um, to win, and she will face even more pressure in Georgia. However, all right, let's talk about the classified records case. You, you, I know you've you've seen this in in the headlines recently, Harry. But there was this report that investigators do not believe that the former president was trying to sell these secret documents to anyone, trying to profit off of it. It was just this ego thing which sounds like something the former president would do. These are my documents. These aren't your documents. These are my documents. So I think, and we haven't gotten a lot of pushback from the Department of Justice that that's not the case. I think that's the kind of leak where they start to put, you know, start to lower the pressure. Like this isn't some espionage case. This was just the former president being who he is. He thinks he owns everything. So, you know, a guy like that, you don't throw the book at him, especially if he's a former president. What you try to do is get a win by coming to some agreement. He pays a fine. If that, I mean, you know, it's a former president. You just come to, he, he writes an apology or he admits, acknowledges wrongdoing. And everybody moves on, but he's got it on his record. I don't know. That's, that's the feeling I get that that's where this is going. 
the best. He is the former president. Look, compare him to Nixon, who people were irate. Maybe Ford lost because he pardoned him. But in retrospect, people thought, you know, you you, want to move on if you can. So the best deal here, I think, would be one that just got him the hell out of the national political <laughs> landscape right. going forward if it if it could be enforced but i i agree that you know this they they're going to really consider uh a they've got to balance things one point though when this came out people were saying oh you know so there's no motive and the response was there doesn't have to be a motive in a, in a criminal case. It's true there doesn't have to be a motive, but there is a motive. It's the exact one you just said, Jeff. This is a guy who wants to say, these are my documents. I'm the state, not anyone else. That's a motive. He wants to keep them and repeatedly is rebuffing the archives and the whole federal government when they want them back. That's, you know, it's hopefully he didn't in addition go on and profit from them but it's not as if that's an innocent thing if he is because of his crazy psychopathologies refusing to give back things that he keeps in his top drawer where somebody can go in and stumble across them that that's good enough motive for what he's being charged with which is obstruction which is you know refusing lawful lawful demands to return these really sensitive documents. I like that word psychopathology because <laughs> you're right. For years I've been telling people especially, you know, even some of his supporters who say, "Oh, they're after him. They're trying to get him." And I tell them, "No. He did this to himself. It's like he keeps stepping into stuff, causing problems, and then he's all, always like, "They're after me." No. You started this. They're trying to clean it up. They're not after you. If you just stay home, watch TV, don't call anyone, don't take anything, everything would be fine. But no, he's always got to like step into something. You know, I, I remember telling FBI types, former FBI types like, oh, my goodness, he did it again. He keeps stepping into stuff, and all of a sudden, a, an investigation blows up. These are self-inflicted. If I, even as supporters, if you're listening to this program, just go back and see how every one of these things started. And more often than not, it is always a self-inflicted wound. Period. It's so true. I mean, he just can't change who he is, it seems. I remember when Schiff in the first impeachment was saying, if you let him go, he'll do it again. And I thought, that's a nice lawyer's rhetorical kind of flourish. No, it was just fact. We, we've we just seen it. He, You know, the day after the, the acquittal there, he, he went and tried to shake down, you know, the, the Ukrainian president the day after Mueller. He's so, I, how much, we don't need any more proof that he is who he is. And, and now the question, you know, is you, you talked about the kind of tepid or ambivalent response from the Republican establishment, but he's still got a rabidly enthusiastic base. How will it play out? I, it sure feels to me like his influence is on the wane, but I thought he was through after access Hollywood. So don't ask me. But I like I like asking your opinion. Harry Lippman, former <laughs> federal prosecutor, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. 
All right, Matt Bender, who is a tech reporter with Mashable, joins us now. And and Matt, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Listen, I don't I don't know what to think about Elon Musk. You know, seems like before he bought Twitter, just seemed like a really bright guy. You know, I've bought several Teslas. I love them. But I got to be honest. I'm thinking about selling Teslas right now. I'm thinking about selling Teslas just by the the way he has, I don't know, it seems like he's so volatile right now. You just don't know day to day what he's going to do, what headline is going to appear next, and why does he seem to be bullying Twitter employees? What is going on with him? Right. I mean, this, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are actually coming to terms with who Elon Musk was as well. This isn't somebody new. This is the same Elon Musk. But as the front and center face of the social media platform, Twitter, people are now really learning the real Elon Musk. They're learning all about the real Elon Musk. You know, as as a executive for an, uh, you know an automobile company or the executive for a, a space exploration company or executive, you know, the the head of Boring Company, a company that makes flamethrowers. You know, you can you can pretty much do that in the background, and you know the the mainstream public the everyday person doesn't really need to interact with who you are, but he is putting himself out there on his platform that he now owns as well on Twitter as he's putting out there the real Elon Musk and people are seeing who he's always been. And I think they're not liking it. Like um, if, if you've read uh, articles or pieces where um, people have interviewed former employees of Tesla or SpaceX, he's, treated them the same way. Um, there, There's uh, pieces, there's been articles about how he's, um, you know, fired SpaceX employees for, you know, the same reason he fired those Twitter employees who were correcting him, his, you know, non-factual information that he tweeted out. He, he fired people at SpaceX for doing the same thing previously. And then there have been uh, lawsuits from former Tesla employees basically alleging all sorts of different bad behavior within the company. Um, this this is Elon Musk. Huh. Well, that's good to know because <laughs> before I, I was not really paying attention to that. I was just so interested in the, the future of electric vehicles and you know, Tesla seem great and, you know, all the advances and then being able to, uh, you know, bring your car, not really have to bring your car in for an update or recall. You just download it like your phone. Really incredible. And and his EV seems light years ahead of many other uh, more established brands. But yes, this Elon Musk, according to The Atlantic, he has a brutally honest management style. And and that's what you're talking about. What also stood out to me is really how blunt former president, former president, current president Joe Biden was, uh, I think it was the day after the midterm elections, when he was asked about 
Elon Musk. And he's, you know, bluntly stated that Musk's relationships with other countries are worth looking into. That was really something that is that a president would say something like that about someone who, I mean, it doesn't appear to be under investigation at this time, but it just seems like something that might have been better not to weigh in on. But the fact that the president did, I think it says a lot about Elon Musk and his standing right now. Right. I mean, at the same time, though, the U.S. government uh, continues to give. Uh, you know, for example, his SpaceX company, uh, big government contracts that are basically, I mean, basically SpaceX is subsidized by the U.S. government. That's where they have, uh, they get the bulk of their, their money. Um, you know, I, I, I agree that um, I don't know what is out there in terms of what uh, President Biden was talking about. So uh, probably best if, if you were going to make a case like that, you would put forward uh, something that you'd know or just not say anything until you're prepared to do that. Um, I, honestly, I don't think we're seeing anything that's like some outside foreign uh, you know, uh, regime is interfering with the United States or something. What we're seeing here is really uh, a the world's richest man trying to control, I mean, that's why he bought Twitter, trying to control one of the most important, really free speech platforms in terms of Twitter's been pretty good in throughout its its history at providing the masses with a voice. I mean, we have seen um, literal uprisings all over the world uh, organized on Twitter. We've seen uh, the ability for people to even out the playing field and uh, complain to other corporations about something and actual, actually resulting in a change due to the reaction on, on Twitter and other platforms. Um, so here is a billionaire, the world's richest man, coming in and buying up the platform. And he's his his biggest vision is basically to let anyone pay him $8 for them to be promoted to everybody else. I mean, to me, he he is that seems like the opposite of free speech. That's pay to play. I mean, he is asking people to pay money for their speech to go further and he's already said that if you don't pay, uh people who do already have an actual verification badge meaning twitter in their you know in its previous form would actually verify notable individuals like celebrities uh media outlets uh journalists they're going to lose that and be downranked by twitter's algorithm unless they pay him $8 i mean it's 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 we're living in the upside down here where he's saying one thing and uh really trying to get us to do another yeah, it just doesn't seem like good business, frankly. Um, but but we'll see how this all turns out. There are questions about his relationship uh, with the Saudis and some other Middle Eastern countries, and so we'll we'll see how it all plays out. Well, well the the Saudi the, that's the, uh, that's actually not what's different about Twitter. Unfortunately, yes, there was always some of these, uh, you know. Uh, not so great outside uh, 
forces and re, you know governments and 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 regimes and royal royal families who were invested in in Twitter. In this case, the the, the Saudis, um, they they were already invested in Twitter prior. It's the same exact uh, thing that came before. They're now invested in Elon Musk Twitter. Um, what what's baffling to me is he is losing mass amounts of advertisers for the way he is acting on this on his platform and for his vision for the platform um i mean he has made it a habit basically to basically perform personal concierge service for right wing trolls and election uh deniers all of the, the, some of the worst people on the internet. And these are the people, if you look at Elon Musk's replies, that he's constantly jumping in and saying, hey, how can I help you? Oh, you have a complaint? Let me address this. I'll look into this right away. So this is pushing advertisers away. And now Musk thinks he's going to get subscribers, people paying $8. He's going to get enough of those to offset his loss in advertising. But I've looked at those numbers and that doesn't make any sense. Now, Musk has paid $44 billion for Twitter. Not all of it is on money, but that means he's got investors and creditors he has to take care of as well. Um, you know, on top of that, he's got to cover a billion dollar a year interest. And so he's got to make this money back fast. Now, Twitter's previous advertising revenue was somewhere around $4.5 billion a year, at least in 2021. That's how much they made. Um, they apparently have bled many advertisers and Musk said due to that, he's looking for subscription revenue to make up half of that. So roughly, you know, $2.25 billion. It's just not possible if you look at the numbers because Twitter has, according to Twitter themselves, they have around, uh, you know, let's say 250 million daily active users. But then they've also said that really only 10% of those 250 million daily active users are what they would call power users, people who actually log into the platform regularly and tweet three to four times a week at least. That's what they call a power user. I know some of you are probably saying, I tweet like 100 times a day. And <laughs> it's people who only tweet three or four times a week or in the same category as me. Well, that shows you how few people are actually going to uh, be interested in his paid Twitter subscription because what you get is really this verification check mark, which is a feature you'd only really care about if you're tweeting. Um, so 10% of those 238 million is really only like 23.8 million or 25 million, give or take. And then you look at what the regular like conversion rate for uh, you know the average in e-commerce for people who see like an advertisement or a subscription and actually end up spending their hard-earned money on it, and it's somewhere between like two to three percent. It's the the math is not adding up for Elon Musk, even at a best-case scenario where he's able to convert uh, a number of those twenty-three million power users. He's only looking at maybe like a hundred million or so revenue in subscriptions, far from the two point twenty five billion he's hoping to get. It's just it it doesn't make any sense. Well, yes, a lot of what he's been doing lately doesn't make any sense, and and we'll see how it, you know, if if he calms down a little bit, gets out of the headlines, and uh, I mean, we'll see. 
We'll see. I I just don't know where this is going for him. I think he's sort sort of irreparably irreparably harmed his own brand and the these businesses that he's trying to grow. But we'll see. Matt Bender of Mashable. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.